Let's pray. Lord, a couple of things I want to uh, bring before you. We want to bring before you corporately this morning before I have some specific uh, requests for the sermon. Uh, is prayer for an associate pastor of a church in Lindale, First Baptist Church, Lindale, a guy named James Seward that I am sort of getting to know, working through a, a matter, uh, ministering to a friend and his family. And um, Lord, I know that James is preaching this morning, that he has been preparing this week, already enjoying the sort of the kindred spirit that we seem to have and enjoying, obviously, a shared Lord. Lord, I want to pray for his marriage first. Um, as he's serving this church in Lindale, I know the uh, the toll that just relentless ministry can take on somebody. Lord, I pray that you will guard him from um, ever seeing it as a job. And those times when it bumps up right next to that feeling, Lord, I pray that you will take him back to his call. I pray that his family can enjoy you as they walk with the people. I pray that his family not see it as a job, but his dad's calling, or husband's calling. Lord, as he is preparing to preach this morning and in the next little while, Lord, I pray that you're preparing his heart to be just absolutely out of the way. The doubts that I know he carries to the pulpit that I pray that you will remove and give him a confidence that you've prepared him, that you've um, communicated at the mountaintop, and that he has a message your message for that church. Lord, I pray the church will be built up, edified, equipped as a response of the time that they spend together at your feet this morning. Lord, I also want to pray for a local official. I want to pray for Dr. Dr. Joseph Perks. I want to pray for, first of all, his worship. If he is a believer, Lord, that it is uh, fueling his um, service on our city council. Lord, if he's not a believer, uh, that he will come to know you through whatever you might use, crisis or um, sickness or whatever it might be, searching, witness, testimony, all of the above, that you'll use those things for your glory in his life and in the life of his family. And Lord, we do pray that he will serve well on the council, that you will use the council and the other members of the council to uh, to work toward peace so that the kingdom can be advanced in this community. Lord, to pray for them as in the time that they're in right now, in time of flux and difficulty and challenge, that ultimately those who know you on the council will be serving as an act of worship, that they'll see Christ seated and in session, and that ultimately he's the ruler, ultimately he has the power, and they'll have confidence in that. Lord, in these next few minutes that we spend together, I feel like um, I confess in front of your people this morning that I feel a special attentiveness to what people probably want and a little doubt about what they need. Doubt not that they need it. Doubt not that it's your something you provided, but doubt that I can deliver it this morning, and I pray that you will speak in spite of me. And that for your glory. I pray that we can sit at your feet this morning enjoying 
a pair of bruised and battered and bloody shoulders that we stand on. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. Last week, we moved into a new section in Hebrews, and we're looking at sort of a paragraph this week and in the coming weeks. Verses 14 through 18 is really where we're sort of camping out and immersing ourselves. Last week, we engaged a truth that we're going to sort of flesh out in a different way this morning, and one that I think is really we're going to be exploring these next few weeks, and that's the humanity of Christ. In verse 14, it says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood. That are so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This little paragraph is just a massive ocean of truth. And it just wouldn't do justice for us to just spend a Sunday or two on it. I was prepared to move on to verse 15 and consider that next verb. If you realize you're paying attention last week, you know that we engaged the verb partook and that this week we were going to move on and engage the verb destroy the one who has the power of Satan or the, the one who has the power of death, that is Satan. And then deliver would be the next verb. It's going to be sort of an outline for our next few weeks. And the Lord just did not let me move on. So I want to take just a second, in some ways I've already done it, but just a second to acquaint you with where we went last week. Last week, in some ways, we connected Hebrews chapter 1 with Hebrews chapter 2. You think those are obvious connections. They're next in the order in the book, that connections that we should make. The problem is we're months apart from the two of those chapters and the two realities that are presented there have to be seen together. The first reality is that Jesus is God. The Father said to the Son in chapter 1, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. He's no less than 100% God. And then in chapter 2, where we went this last week, he himself likewise partook of the same things, those same things being flesh and blood. And in verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers, that's us, in every respect. So he's 100% God, and he's 100% man. Like one of those Trinity sort of truths that math can't explain, we can't really get our head around, we just know it. Because he says it. 
Last week, we considered this truth, really, I think, maybe for the first time, really engaging it head on of his nature as fully God and fully man. And I just believe that God wasn't ready for us to move on. We're going to consider this nature of Jesus through the story of a little dude named Athanasius this morning. This morning is going to be a little different in the way that I preach. I'm going to be sharing some excerpts from an ancient book. So being a little different, I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to ask for a show of hands of anyone who has, first of all, heard of Athanasius. Three or so, four. Anybody over here? A couple? A couple head nods. People don't like to raise their hand. It's not a real physically responsive church. <laughs> Everybody stand up, huh? <laughs> so we got maybe five or six hands and maybe some others that were willing to raise their hand or willing to acknowledge it but not willing to raise their hand who just gave me a head nod. This morning we're going to consider the nature of Jesus through a little man named Athanasius. This little boy named Athanasius was born in Egypt likely in the year 298 A.D., that's after Christ. A couple hundred years after our New Testaments closed out. He was born into an early Christian home. We know that. He was born in Egypt. He's born an Egyptian, but he's raised with a Greek education. Before his birth, they had experienced, Christianity had experienced about 40 years of peace. But shortly after he was born, in the year 303, when he's four years old, maybe five, came the last and the greatest Christian persecution in the Roman Empire under the emperors Diocletian and Maximin. The persecution ended in 311 A.D. It was an edict of toleration that was passed, a couple years later, in 313 A.D., is the Edict of Milan passed by Constantine, allowing for religious tolerance in the entire Roman Empire, a profound event in the life of the Roman Empire. But he would have been about 14 at this point when the time of peace came. So from the time he's five years old to the time that he is 14, we might say his formative years, they were spent in a time of severe persecution. We don't know specifically if he lost immediate family members, but the persecution was so severe, he likely lost immediate family members to martyrdom in this period of his boyhood. In some ways, this guy, this little dude Athanasius, is almost a case study of our journey in Hebrews. You know, the context in Hebrews is a little Hebrew church that lives likely in Rome under the time of Nero, and they're dealing with severe persecution. In some ways, this guy, Athanasius, is going to be a case study for what it looks like for the truths of the godness of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus to be presented. In a time of suffering, in a time when most people might think that's the most irrelevant truth in the world, we get to look at this little dude named Athanasius and see how it hit him. 
that Jesus was and is both God and man. Athanasius, at the age of 30, became the bishop of Alexandria. If you were paying attention last week, you remember when we engaged this truth of Christ being fully God and fully man, we dealt with some early church heresies. Asceticism in the first century that believed that Jesus was just an illusion. And then probably the most profound heresy we dealt with last week was Arianism. If you remember last week, we introduced this guy named Arius who was a presbyter or one of the bishops of the church in Alexandria. He wasn't the bishop. But he taught that there was a time when Jesus was not. He taught that there was a time that Jesus was created, that the Father um, created him at some point prior to creation, implying that the Trinity wasn't always the Trinity. They had a council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., if you remember that date that we marked last week, where they clearly said Jesus is fully God and fully man. God of God, light of light. Remember the statement we engaged last week, a profound event. That's when St. Nicholas slapped Arius all upside his head. Another profound and enjoyable event. Well, Athanasius became the bishop of Alexandria three years after this council. He was a deacon who attended that council. He wasn't serving in a primary leadership role, but he was there. Three years after the council, he became the bishop of the church in Alexandria, and he served as the bishop of the church, the bishop, the head guy, for 45 years after that. Seventeen of those years were spent in exile running for his life. As it turns out, after the Council of Nicaea, although the council made a clear statement on the humanity and deity of Christ, Arianism gained political influence yet again in the newly Christianized Roman Empire. And Athanasius had to run for his life. This time, though, not at the hands of an unbelieving Rome, as he did in his boyhood, but this time at the hands of a wrongly believing Rome. He was exiled five times by four different emperors. One of those periods of exile was spent hiding in his father's tomb for months. Another exile was spent in the Egyptian desert, hiding from people who were paid to murder him. His plight in contending for the humanity and deity of Christ was such a profound struggle that in that day and age, they came up with a Latin saying. I don't I didn't even write down what the Latin saying was. I didn't bother with it. But here's how it translates. It's pretty simple. Athanasius against the world. Pretty good, isn't it? Athanasius against the world. Today, I'm going to be reading some excerpts from one of his two books. The book specifically is called On the Incarnation. This is before they had to come up with nifty names so people would read them. On the Incarnation. Now, you might think, given the title of the book, that it's written in response to Arianism. Here's the cool thing. It was written three years, at least three years, It was written more than three years 
before. It was written before the Council of Nicaea when he's 21 years old. He would have been 26 or 27 at the Council of Nicaea. So it's written before this is really an issue. And here's the beauty about this little book. It wasn't written to correct a wrong. It was written to a new believer, a dude named Macarius. Likely a guy that's about Athanasius' age, a young man, a new believer. And it's written to communicate the good news. It's like a gospel tract. When I picked up the book and I first started reading it, before I read the introduction and things like that, which we should always read first, like reading the instructions for using something, guys don't do that stuff, I said, I better read that. But before I did that, I was thinking this is in response to Arianism. And then I realized this is a picture, this is a, a text where a guy wrote a book so that he could disciple somebody. And I'm thinking that is largely and wildly inefficient. I mean, I want to disciple masses of people, don't we? Because we're just American and we want to do everything efficient. But the nature of the kingdom is to be faithful in little bitty small things, and this is evidence of that. This guy writes a book on his version of the good news, which I'm going to tell you right now, as I read it, it's the biblical version of the good news, and the good news for him is that God took on flesh, and he writes a book about it to a new believer named Macarius. I love that it's so inefficient, and I love that he may have been writing this thing thinking it's only for Macarius, and here 1,700 years later, I'm going to share some of it with you this morning. That's a lot like God, isn't it? To take something that's seemingly so insignificant and so foolish and so small and so inefficient and to use it for his own glory. Now, there are three things that I want to share with you from this book Three important considerations of Christ's humanity. Now, I reserve the right to share more later because I've only read half the book. Now, I won't this morning because obviously I have the rest of the book to read. But this is just from the first half of the book. Three important considerations of the humanity of Christ. And then I'm going to share what is something that he calls as the divine dilemma and the answer to the divine dilemma. Really, the three important considerations, in some ways, are just us fleshing out. What does it matter that Jesus took on flesh? That pun was not intended there, but it just unfolded. Us considering, what are the implications? What are the considerations? But the meat and the marrow is really what I'm especially excited to get to because he develops the gospel in a beautiful way and shows how the incarnation is the answer to the problem. But first, let's go to the considerations. I'm going to share excerpts from this book as we go. Here's the first of three considerations. First, Christ's godness was not diminished in his humanity. Hebrews 1, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Does not suffer at the expense of Hebrews 2. He himself likewise partook of the very same things, flesh and blood, and became like his brothers in every respect. Hebrews 1 doesn't suffer at the expense of Hebrews 2. Listen to this excerpt. I'm going to share a good bit of this book with you today. Not a good bit of the book, but I'm going to share a lot with you. 
The Word, this is how he refers to Christ, the Word, his, his name for Jesus with a capital W. The Word was not hedged in by his body, nor did his presence in the body prevent his being present elsewhere as well. Now, that's a new thought. When he moved, his body did not cease also to direct the universe by his mind and might. His body was for him not a limitation, but an instrument, so that he was both in it and in all things, and outside all things, resting in the Father alone. At one and the same time, this is the wonder. As man, he was living a human life, and as word, he was sustaining the life of the universe. Oh, that's his greatness. And as son, he was in constant union with the Father. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. I'm not going to preach from Athanasius this morning. In some ways, he is our guest preacher. But I am going to take you to some texts that I think that he would find very appropriate given, given the points that he's making. Colossians chapter 1. I really only have three or four satellites for you to turn to this morning, and this is the first of those three. Colossians chapter 1, it's on page 983 of your little blue ESVs, or if you have a very common ESV. He, this being Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, Hebrews chapter 1, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Some of the things we can just draw from this passage is that he is the image of the invisible God. The is a definite article, and that's important. He's not one revelation of God. He is the image of the invisible God. He created all things, means all things, means all things. In him, all things are held together. Is anybody missing all things? In him, they're held together. He is preeminent in everything. That word means that he is greatest. He is finest. He is most excellent. And the fullness of God dwelled in him, not three-quarters God, not mostly God. He's not God light. He's full on God. There is no indication in our Bibles that God or that Christ parked his godness or his power or his might or his oversight or his preeminence when he took on flesh. 
And his humanity certainly hadn't kept him from continuing to rule while at the Father's right hand, still 100% man. Did this thing just give up? Okay. He's still 100% God and 100% man. Listen to this little excerpt on his humanity, and then we're going to consider his godness. You must understand, therefore, that when writers on this sacred theme speak of him as eating and drinking and being born, they mean that the body as a body was born and sustained with the food proper to its nature. He ate the same types of foods, or at least substance, that we eat, while God the Word who was united with it, was at the same time ordering the universe. He's eaten dinner and ordering the universe and revealing himself through his bodily acts not as not man only, but God. Those acts are rightly said to be his acts because the body which did, which did them did indeed belong to him and none other. Moreover, it was right that they should be thus attributed to him as man in order to show that his body was a real one and not merely an appearance. The deceticists forget that he ate real meals. He had some real fish. He had some real bread and wine on the eve of his crucifixion. From such ordinary acts as being born and taking food, he was recognized as being actually present in the body. But by the extraordinary acts which he did through the body, he proved himself to be the Son of God. There is clear evidence for his humanity because he ate, he drank, he slept, and he walked and moved. Now, here's evidence for his godness, full and complete godness. His bodily acts still declare him to be not man only, but the power and word of God. To speak authoritatively to evil spirits, for instance, and to drive them out is not human, but divine. And who could see him curing all the diseases to which mankind is prone and still deem him mere man and not also God? He cleansed Lepers, he made the lame to walk. He opened the ears of the deaf and the eyes of the blind. There was no sickness or weakness that he did not drive away. Even the most casual observer can see that these were acts of God. The healing of a man born blind, for instance, who but the father and the artificer, which is also artisan, skilled worker, of man, the creator of man, the controller of his whole being could thus have restored the faculty denied at birth. He who did thus must surely be himself the Lord of birth. Again, consider the miracle at Cana. Would not anyone who saw the substance of water transmuted into wine understand that he who did it was the Lord and maker of the water that he changed? It was for the same reason that he walked on the sea as on dry land to prove to the onlookers that he had mastery over all, including gravity and density. 
and the feeding of the multitude when he made little into much so that from five loaves, 5,000 mouths were filled. Did not that prove him none other than the very Lord whose mind is over all? Man, there's plenty of evidence for his godness. He drove out demons. He healed diseases. And not a lot of the stuff that you kind of see on TV where somebody says, my back hurts, and then all of a sudden it feels better. I'm talking full-on healings. People that have been lame their entire lives are getting up and leaping and walking and carrying the bed that they laid on their 38 years of life. He's giving sight to blind people. He's cleansing lepers. He's raising dead people. Who can do that but God? Raising dead people, walking on water, feeding loaves and fishes, defying math, something that you and I are both bound to, all bound to. Defying math, showing that he owns it. Look at Mark chapter 4. I want to show you a sweet picture of these two realities right next to each other in one story. Mark chapter 4. These things, these little healings, these not little, these massive shows of his divinity are just that. They're flashes and glimpses of the divine. As he sits and eats a meal, he's showing us that he's human. As he then heals a blind man, he shows us he's God. Listen to this one account in Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. I watched a video this morning on the news of a woman who, with her husband, videoed the tornado that would take her husband's life moments later. It was crazy. They're sitting having a conversation with each other as this tornado is coming toward their house. They're videoing it out the window and talking about that thing may end up killing us. It killed her husband moments later. Who can do anything about a storm? Any of you? We can't do anything but hunker down. Listen what happens. The boat is already filling with this storm they're going through, but he was in the stern asleep. It's just so human. It's not human to be asleep in a storm, but it's human for him to be asleep. I mean, think about it for a minute. God the Son is asleep. It's crazy human. He's asleep on the cushion. I'm just envisioning him right now gathering up a cushion of garments and laying his head down before the storm came and looking really human like he did eating a meal, asleep. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke, and he did what none of us can do. He rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still, and the wind ceased, 
and there was a great calm. Anybody else can do that? Anybody? He can because he's fully man, asleep, and fully God, peace be still. His godness was not diminished one iota in his taking on flesh. He was 100% man and 100% God as he is now. Secondly, first is that his godness was not diminished in his humanity. Secondly, he was the one to get the job done. He was the one to come and take on flesh. If you understand the Trinity or you've examined and considered the Trinity enough, you know that really there is nobody else there to do that. But why not some sort of super being or some angel? Why not adoptionism like we talked about last week where they just sort of put these supernatural powers on some good man? Why did Jesus have to be the one to do this? I'm going to tell you right now, I had not thought of this connection, and it's a beautiful connection. This connection in some ways is like the proverb that a well-spoke word or a fitly spoke word is like apples of gold and fields of silver. It's just perfect. This reality that he brings out right here is just like that. The appropriateness of his coming and taking on flesh as opposed to anyone else. He was the right man to do it. Listen to this excerpt. Remember, he's writing to Macarius. This is how he begins his discipleship book to young Macarius. We will begin then with the creation of the world and with God, its maker. Starting in Genesis, a good place if you want to disciple somebody. For the first fact that you must grasp is this. This is a beautiful connection. The renewal of creation has been wrought by the self-same word, remember that's Christ, who made it in the beginning. The renewal of creation has been wrought by the self-same Jesus Christ who made it in the beginning. There is thus no inconsistency between creation and salvation. If you disciple somebody or you're teaching your children about God, you might think that when you teach them about creation, you're not yet talking to them about salvation. And the reality is Athanasius says otherwise. Those are connected. There's no inconsistency between creation and salvation for the one father has employed the same agent for both works, affecting the salvation of the world through the same word who made it in the beginning. Christ was the appropriate one to do it because he's the one that made it in the first place. If we're going to talk about recreation, then the one who created is the one to get it done. You remember the thing that we've developed in Hebrews 1? I've memorized the passage and I haven't made this connection. Just think about it for a minute. Many of you have memorized it. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Pay attention to that. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, 
he sat down as redeemer and ruler. In the same breath, the Hebrews preacher goes from he is creator and heir to redeemer and ruler. It is appropriate that he's the guy to get this done. It's like apples of gold in fields of silver. It is a word fitly spoken. In that case, pun intended. A word fitly spoken. Listen to this excerpt. This is a beautiful illustration. You know what happens? We're going to insert Macarius. You know what happens, Macarius? When a portrait that's been painted on a panel becomes obliterated through external stains, you know what happens, new believer? The artist does not throw away the panel, but the subject of the portrait has to come sit for it again. And then the likeness is redrawn on the same material. Even so was it with the all-holy Son of God. He, the image of the Father, came and dwelt in our midst. He came and sat for the portrait yet again. In order that he might renew mankind made after himself and seek out his lost sheep, even as he says in the gospel, I came to seek and save that which was lost. He came to seek and save lost humanity by sitting for the portrait again. He was the image bearer in the first place. He was the right man slash being to get it done. A man wouldn't do. Take the best man you've ever known, the best man that's ever existed, Moses. It says in the, it says in the Bible, it says he's the most humble man that ever lived on the face of the earth. Take Moses and have him sit for the portrait and it just wouldn't do. We needed an image bearer to be the subject, a perfect, unstained image bearer. And the reality is, he goes on to say, you cannot put straight in others what's warped in yourself. You hear that? You cannot put straight in others what's warped in yourself. Perhaps you will say then that creation was enough to teach men about the Father. But if that had been so, such great evils would never have occurred. Creation was there all the time, but it did not prevent men from wallowing in error. Once more then, who is the Word of God, Jesus, who sees all that's in a man and moves all things in creation, who alone could meet the needs of the situation. Ha! Who alone could meet the needs of of the situation. It was his part and his alone. Man, that's a sweet truth. First Timothy says this, there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Nobody else could sit for that picture. We stained it He sat for it. He's the one who gave himself as a ransom for all. He's the only one that would do. And the third truth, again, I reserve the right for more later, but the third truth from his book that's really stood out to me 
comes out of this excerpt. He's been manifested in a human body for this reason, out of the love and goodness of his Father for the salvation of us men. He's been manifested in human body for this reason only, out of the love and goodness of his Father for the salvation of us men. I'm going to tell you right now, if I have a deficiency in my preaching and in my view of, the, of ministry, as I look at how I handle God's word and truths that I engage, I often neglect love. Some of you never felt it, and some of you need to hear it. And I think that's the thing that I hear from people most often. I about God's love in the preaching. Give me just a second to screw this little antenna in. I miss hearing about God's teaching or God's love in your teaching and preaching. And that's why this was such a welcome reality for me because I'm going, oh, yeah. See, I felt loved as a kid, and I just trust and know that God loves me. Some of you need to hear it over and over again. And as I engaged this, I thought, man, this is good medicine for those that need to hear it over and over and over again, that the incarnation is an act of love. I've never really connected the two. The love and goodness of the Father is the reason for the incarnation. Here's what he develops through a number of different sections in this book so far. He develops this reality is that if love is true, then it's going to have an application. A man that says he loves his wife, yet he does nothing to show that to her. He does no, makes no effort to minister to her in any way. Does he really even love her? Love, if true, is going to have an expression and an application. And the love and the goodness of the Father is the reason for the incarnation, and we could take it the other direction. The incarnation is the love and goodness of the Father. The incarnation. So, I mean, somebody comes to you and said, man, I'm really feeling unloved. I don't know if God loves me. How many of you are going to turn to the incarnation? This is what Athanasius does. He's teaching young Macarius on what really matters and what's driving God, and he takes him to the incarnation. Turn to 1 John. It's going to be the last passage I have you turn to this morning. 1 John chapter 3. This is good medicine, especially for those of you that feel unloved, for those of you who wrestle with God being this cosmic killjoy. This will hopefully be good medicine for you to know that he is uber loving. And how specifically? 1 John 3, starting in verse 16. By this we know love. Somebody comes to you and says, man, I'm feeling, feeling unloved. I don't know if God loves me. Here's a passage you can turn to. By this, okay, I want to know what this is. We know love, that he laid down his life what specifically did he lay down? His flesh. Crucified, beaten, bruised. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love in word, love not in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. 
Man, somebody needs some love encouragement. First of all, you can see from this passage right here that love, if true, is a verb. It's not a feeling. It's a verb. Love has movement and it has application. And here's how we know it. He laid down his life, i.e. his flesh, for us. That's flesh that he took on as an act of love. Love lays down his life. Love lays down the world's goods. Love is deed and truth, not just word or talky talk. That's what his incarnation was. If we want to know what love looks like, if we want to know love, we see it in the person and work and the flesh and the nap in the front of the boat, Jesus. If you go and tell somebody, man, God loves you, God's loving, and you don't talk about Jesus, you missed it. The first passage of Scripture I ever memorized was John 3.16. I bet that's one that many of you have memorized. My dad gave me a, a bag of peanut M&Ms for memorizing it. I was a hungry little kid, so this was a big incentive for me. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Right? When I was preaching through John 3 specifically, years ago at this point, I had to reckon with this passage, a passage that I memorized as a little boy eating chocolate, or, you know, peanut M&M's. And I had to hit it anew. And what I realized is what's being said here is that God is not this big, ooey-gooey, loving being. It's not God so loves the world. It's this big expanse of love. What's being said there is that God loves the world in this way. That's what the so means. God so loved the world. Not an amount. Ah, big, gooey love. God loved the world just so. He sent his only begotten son. If somebody's having love problems and doesn't feel loved and you want to minister to that person and you don't mention Jesus, you can be real loving and sweet to them, but you don't mention Jesus, then they might think you a functional savior. They might look to you and say, man, I've really experienced love. And guess what? You're going to let them down because you can't do what Jesus did. If you really want to be loving to that person, you've got to go to love incarnate. And take them to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Look in the next chapter of 1 John. He deals with it again. Verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Look at this next verse. If, we just, if it just ended right there, God is love, then we might think he's this big gooey gooey thing. But he goes on in the next verse. In this... Okay, there's no this. I want to pay attention to you. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. In this, okay, he's made manifest that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. He says it again a different way in case we missed it. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the wrath absorber for our 
sins. Love was made manifest. You have love issues? If you don't go to Christ to see how God loves you, then you've missed it. If you never have another healthy breath, if you never take another meal, if you never spend another night in a warm or bed or cool bed, I know we're moving, moving into summer in Greenville, if you never have another pair of clothes that's presentable and you wonder, God, do you love me anymore? Just asking that question shows that you've missed it, that he's already loved us completely and perfectly and absolutely in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That should change how you view every single thing you go through. Don't ask that question, does he love me anymore? Because it's like, Jesus, move out of the way. I need to ask God something. Jesus, <laughs> move, please. I need to find out, God, are you loving Mm-hmm. And Jesus is standing over there going, hey, you right here. Over here. Over here. Look, nail holes. Look, flesh. Man, if you want to know if the Father loves you and you don't look to the Son, you've missed it. He is love incarnate. The love and goodness of the Father is the reason for the incarnation, and the incarnation is the love and goodness of the Father. Get it? Man, that's Discipleship 101, Macarius. You got to get this. Now, for the marrow of Athanasius' little discipleship book, this is the part I was really excited to get to, so... The last part is all good, and I think it should be heard and heeded, but listen to what he develops now. This is sort of separate from the sermon, but then again, it's not. He develops in this book something called The Divine Dilemma. I love the title of it. For some of you who might be wondering, okay, what does it mean to trust Jesus? What does it mean to be a Christian? These next few minutes are going to reveal that, of, of what the good news is. He develops the divine dilemma. Listen to what he says. We saw in the last chapter that the human race was in a process of destruction. Now, remember, he's writing to Macarius, telling the good news, the story. The human race is in process of destruction. Man who was created in God's image and in his possession of reason reflected the very word himself, Christ, was disappearing through decay and death. He's telling the story of humanity. And the work of God was being undone. His creation through death and decay is being uncreated. The law of death, which followed from the transgression, that's the fall in the garden, prevailed upon us. And from it, there was no escape. The thing that was happening was in truth both monstrous and unfitting. Those are two key words. 
It would, of course, have been unthinkable or unfitting that God should go back on his word and that man having transgressed should not die. That's what a lot of people want from God. Really, here's the plan we want from God. Let's just play like it didn't happen. The fruit is missing from the tree, the one tree that they're told not to eat from. It's just a piece of fruit. Let's just act, let's act like it didn't happen. Would that be fitting for a just God? It would be unthinkable for a just God. If you had been wronged in some way and you want to appeal to a just God, do you want a God that's going to waffle? It would be unfitting for him to just say, let's just forget about it. That's unfitting. But it was equally monstrous that beings which once had shared the nature of Christ, the Word, should perish and turn back again into non-existence through corruption. It was unworthy of the goodness of God that creatures made by him should be brought to nothing through the deceit wrought upon man by the devil. And it was supremely unfitting that the work of God in mankind should disappear either through their own negligence or through the deceit of evil spirits. That's the divine dilemma. It's unthinkable that God should go back on his word and say, let's just forget about it. And not condemn man to death for his sin. Because that's what he told him. You eat from that tree, you will surely die. It'd be unfitting for him to say, let's just forget about it. On the other hand, it would be monstrous that man made in the image of God for fellowship with God should perish forever. That's the divine dilemma. You see it? It'd be unfitting for him to just play like it never happened, but it would be also monstrous for him to destroy all humanity because of what Satan did. That's the divine dilemma. So we might think and hope that repentance would be enough. If Adam and Eve had just said, oh God, um, you know, I just kind of had a moment of weakness. I'm sorry. It will never happen again. We might think that repentance would be enough, and he speaks to this. It's unthinkable that God, the Father of truth, should go back upon his word regarding death in order to ensure our continued existence. It's unthinkable that he'd just say, let's just forget about it. He couldn't falsify himself, so what then was God to do? Was he to demand repentance from men for their transgression? You might say that that was worthy of God and argue further that as though, as through the transgression they became subject to corruption, so through repentance they might return to incorruption again. But repentance would not guard the divine consistency. For if death did not hold dominion over men, God would still remain untrue. See, taking a piece of fruit from the tree, even if you said, I'm sorry, you look at the tree and there's still a piece of fruit missing. You see that? Even if you're sorry. Nor does repentance recall men from what's according to their nature. All that it does is to make them cease from sinning. 
Even if Adam and Eve said, we will never do that again. We promise, God. Had it been a case of trespass only and not of subsequent corruption, repentance would have been well enough. But when once transgression had begun, men came under the power of the corruption proper to their nature and were bereft of the grace which belonged to them as creatures in the image of God. No repentance could not meet the case. Here's the answer, though, to the divine dilemma. In case Macarius saw his sin and thought for a moment he could just say, Sorry, God. Here's the answer to the divine dilemma. This is where we're going to close. I want you to hear this. For this purpose, then, the incorporeal or the spiritual an incorruptible and immaterial word of God being Christ entered our world. But now he entered the world in a new way, stooping to our level in his love and self-revealing to us. He saw the reasonable race, the race of men that like himself expressed the Father's mind, wasting out of existence and death reigning over all in corruption. He saw that corruption held us all the closer because it was the penalty for the transgression. He saw, too, how unthinkable it would be for the law to be repealed before it was fulfilled. He saw how unseemly it was that the very things of which he himself was the artificer should be disappearing. He saw how the surpassing wickedness of men was mounting up against them. He saw also their universal liability to to death. All this he saw in pitying our race, moved with compassion for our limitation, unable to endure that death should have the mastery rather than that his creatures should perish and the work of his father for us men come to naught. He took himself a body a human body, even as our own. Nor did he will merely to become embodied adoptionism or merely to appear asceticism. Had that been so, he could have revealed his divine majesty in some other and better way. No. He took our body. Taking a body like our own, because all our bodies were liable to the corruption of death, he surrendered his body to death in place of all. And he offered it to the Father. This he did out of sheer love. For us, so that in his death all might die and the law of death thereby be abolished because when he had fulfilled in his body that for which it was appointed 
it was thereafter voided death of its power for men. That's the answer, Macarius. That's the good news. Let me pray. Father, I pray for two things. I pray, first of all, for those who know you, but who wrestle feeling unloved. Lord, I ache. I ache for those who feel that way. Lord, I pray with everything in me this morning that those who wrestle with that ache, that they see your love in the person and work of Jesus Christ this morning, that they enjoy him and they enjoy you. They see that they are swimming, bathed, baptized in love. And Lord, secondly, for those who don't know you, if there's anybody here this morning that is not in fellowship with you through repentance and faith, Lord, I pray that this morning they see that they have to trust on you alone in the person and work of Jesus. Just being sorry for our sin is not enough. But faith in Christ, trusting in Christ, that He is our righteousness, that He is our propitiation, that He has borne our wrath in His flesh on the tree. Lord, I pray for new faith today. Pray for your will to be done. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'll look at one verse from the 23rd Psalm. You can turn there if you'd like. familiar psalm many of you probably have it memorized and there is a table that's been prepared for us this morning <clears throat> and David speaks about this table that's been prepared and um, before we read what he says here or sings uh, I want you to imagine that he's well acquainted with God providing um, physical nourishment through a table, um, him providing manna on the ground, the just enough. He would know how God protected and provided nourishment for his prophets. Elijah had just enough water at the brook Cherith in a drought and desert. And then the ravens brought him food morning and evening, no lunch, just enough. 
So he's well acquainted with being provided for physically, nourishing. And yet the psalmist is pining for uh, a bigger and newer and better table. And that's what he sings about here in the 23rd Psalm, this table that is prepared. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Do you see the contrast between just enough water and some bread? And this is a banqueting table. This is a celebratory table. This is a, it is finished party table. I hate using that word party because it's got so many ill connotations, but this is a finished meal. This is done. There's a reason why we don't just serve bread and water And it's not just because the fruit of the vine looks like blood. That's that's not the only reason. The fruit of the vine is a finished drink. It's a celebration drink. And that is what he's talking about here, this table. And he prepares it for us. Your good days and your bad days don't admit you in or out of this table. They don't keep you out. They don't get you in. He prepares the table. Deacons may have put this together, but you know how this was really prepared? You've heard it all morning. This table was prepared by incarnation, and we take his flesh, and we eat his body broken for us this morning. It's a celebration, and then it's in front of our enemies. I just, just think about everything that's in front of you right now, all the things that you would say, that's, that's an enemy, whether that's a physical person that's threatening you. Maybe it's your thoughts, your experiences, your past, bad parenting, weariness, whatever's in front of you. There's so much standing right in front of you. And just imagine, I like to imagine uh, the Lord just parting all the enemies. Excuse me, excuse me. Please move, excuse me. And, and he prepares Jesus, for us, in the midst of all things that come against us. Now, for me, I just imagine as he's preparing that table, he, he looks at anxiety and gives a high elbow to the chin. That's how I like to imagine that, that, that enemy of anxiety in me, that, that, that banquet, that incarnation prepared for me is in the face of and in front of all enemies. And you anoint my head with oil. We're not just here at this table prepared by incarnation. We're not just here flippantly. We're welcomed in as sons and daughters, anointing our heads with oil. That's you are in the house. You are in my family, anointed with oil. You are welcome here, believing and trusting and eating the incarnation. And my cup overflows. This meal is not a I hope this gets you by till dinner meal. This is not a, boy, I hope this does it for you meal. This is a, we drink the fruit of the vine. It is finished. We drink a finished drink and an ample, sufficient flesh in this meal. And it is body broken for you, and it's a drink that is finished. Let's pray once again before we take the meal.
Father, as we receive <clears throat> this meal, we know in reality we are receiving you and that this is a meal where we enjoy once again a taste of this incarnation, a reminder of the reality. And the reality is your loving kindness, your loving kindness in flesh, and we get to enjoy it. And yet at the same time, it's a taste of what is to come. That surely your goodness and mercy will pursue us until you come back and you make a new heaven and new earth. And that we don't just wait like the prophets for some water and some manna on the ground, but that we enjoy the Christ, the consummation of all the ages we enjoy in this time. And we rest in and we eat this meal in the face of and in the presence of all our enemies. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Head anointed as sons and daughters in the family, in the face of everything that would come against us. Thank you, Lord, for loving us with your flesh. Take and eat. Not just water to get us by, but celebrating the fruit of the vine. Take a drink. Father, as we enter into a time of worship where we gather our gifts, our tithes, our offerings to give back to you. We know that it is out of a worshipful heart that we're to give, a cheerful heart that we're to give, and I pray that you would examine our hearts, that we would examine our hearts as we move into this time of giving, and that it would be overflowing because of your love, because for your fame and for your glory, we would give in accordance to your provision, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. C.S. Lewis wrote the introduction to this book, and uh, he said this, If any man is tempted to think as one might be tempted who read only contemporaries, that Christianity, he puts in quotes, is a word of so many meanings that it means nothing at all, he can learn beyond all doubt by stepping out of his own century that this is not so. Just because we have 90-something Christian churches in Greenville and all these different versions of Christian churches, don't think for a moment that Christianity gets to the point because there's so many possible definitions that it means nothing at all. You step outside your own century and you realize all these Christian churches in this community, if they preach Christ as crucified and risen as having a real physical body and being fully God, we have this in common. We have this dude Athanasius as our forefather in common. You step outside your century and you go, wait a second. I have more in common with all these different denominations and churches in, I, in this community than I don't because I have Christ in common. Man, that should change your perspective. You step outside your century and you realize things like that. You read guys like Athanasius and you go, man, we have a Trinitarian God in view, so I can handle that. I can handle that. He also said this, and this... Maybe this morning is a metaphor, or at least my, uh, at least showing a little bit of my emotion, I think, or maybe a lot. For my own part, I tend to find the doctrinal books often more helpful. He's talking about going back and reading these early guys. This was translated from Greek. 
I read it to you. It's not that hard. I mean, it's not easy, but it's not insurmountable. And he's encouraging people to go back and read the originals. Not necessarily in the Greek, but... I find the doctrinal books often more helpful in devotion than the devotional books. And I rather suspect that the same experience may await many others. I believe that many who find that nothing happens when they sit down or kneel down to a book of devotion would find that the heart sings unbidden while they're working their way through a tough bit of theology with a pipe in their teeth and a pencil in their hand. (laughs) That greatness right there. Everybody's got to start smoking a pipe unless you're under the age of 18. Parents are going to be upset with Ben. Okay, that was not encouraging to go smoking a pipe. I thought it would be an appropriate way to end the morning by sharing Athanasius' epitaph. His epitaph was written by Gregory of Nazania. Here's what he said about Athanasius, the guy that held to the complete humanity and complete godness of Jesus and saw it as foundational teaching, i.e. Macarius. Christianity 101, and also lived in a time of suffering. He grew rich in contemplation, this is Athanasius, rich in splendor of life, combining them in wondrous sort by that golden bond which few can weave, using life as the guide of contemplation, contemplation as the seal of life. He was sublime in action, lowly in mind, inaccessible in virtue, the most accessible in conversation. Gentle, free from anger, sympathetic, sweet in words, sweeter in disposition, angelic in appearance. (laughs) That might be overstated a little bit. More angelic in mind. Calm in rebuke, persuasive in praise, without spoiling the good effect of either by excess but rebuking with the tenderness of a father, praising with the dignity of a ruler. His tenderness was not dissipated, nor his severity sour, for the one was reasonable and the other prudent, and both truly wise. His disposition sufficed for the training of his spiritual children with very little need of words, his words with very little need of rod, and his moderate use of the rod with still less for the knife. He was the patron of the wedded and of the virgin state alike, both peaceable and peacemaker, and attendant upon those who are passing from hence. In a good old age, he closed his life and was gathered to his fathers, the patriarchs and prophets and apostles and martyrs who contended for the truth. Athanasius sounds like a guy who enjoyed Christ as fully God and fully man, and his life showed it. Y'all stand, and I'll dismiss you. God, what good news today. As we hear the dilemma and consider the real problem of man and hear the good news of Jesus, it's apples of gold and fields of silver. It is such a well-placed word. Lord, I pray that hearts saying this morning. I pray that it'll be something that spills over into this afternoon and this week and this year and that we'll walk in what we've heard and enjoyed this morning. We are thankful together for men like Athanasius 
that are tenacious about the truth, that held fast to the truth whatever the cost, and who were faithful in small things like pouring into a little dude named Macarius. Lord, I pray that we'll be as faithful in our small things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.